The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. How are we this morning? I'm Dave. I am the high school pastor here at TBC, and it's really good to see you all this morning. If you are new to TBC in the last year, if you could raise your hand real quick, we would love to have some ushers give this card to you that they mentioned in the earlier part of the welcome. And so lift your hand if you could real high, and they'll get this card to you. New to TBC in the last year, we'd love to have you come to our newcomers brunch this coming Saturday, 10 o'clock over in the Creekside building. And this is an invitation for that, and uh, we'd love to have you join us for that this coming Saturday. So... um, Obviously, um, yesterday was an anniversary, a 20th anniversary uh, for 9-11. And so uh, what I want to do this morning is, is just read a prayer um, for our church and for just all, all those that are continuing to grieve, obviously. And remembering grieving and mourning, I think, are good for us to do individually, but also corporately. It reminds us, I think, who we are, but also reminds us who God is. And uh, so this is a prayer that is from Sojourn Community Church. And so I'm going to ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes. And as we reflect on this anniversary, and then we're going to pray together this, this prayer. Lord, as we gather celebrating your glory and goodness, we acknowledge the shadow of yesterday's anniversary. Together we remember September 11, 2001. And we mourn for the lives lost in New York City, Washington, D.C., and on Flight 93. We mourn the lives lost in Iraq and Afghanistan. We grieve death's reign, the visible and invisible forces of evil, the principalities and powers of this dark world, and the evil that lurks in the hearts of all people, including our own. With the psalmist, we cry, how long, O Lord? How long will your enemies scoff? How long will you withhold your justice from a world that is desperate to see it? We grieve a world at war, And we ask you for peace in all of the nations of the earth that long for freedom from oppression. We ask for protection over our loved ones and families who serve in the military, who serve as first responders. We pray for the fatherless and the widow, for the poor and oppressed. And we lift up our global leaders that by your grace, they might lead with wisdom and justice and work for peace. And we acknowledge that all such hopes and longings point us to the one who will soon return and bring an everlasting peace and justice. And so together we proclaim Psalm 146, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, this morning we are going to the book of Mark, as many of you know. And uh, 
We're going to be going through this section that's a very interesting section this morning. And when you read commentaries, some will say this is one of the most difficult passages in Mark, if not the entire New Testament. And so if you like apocalypse, then you picked a good Sunday to be here. A couple of weeks ago, Danny Cunningham, our executive pastor, knew I was preparing a sermon dealing with end times, and he said I should go listen to an old sermon that Gary had preached many years ago, where Gary addressed everyone's anxiety about world events. And I said, well, when did he preach that? And he said, 2010. And I said, what was so bad about 2010? I can't remember. And uh, there's been a lot of debate on the passage we're looking at today, Mark 13, and some well, if you read some commentaries, they will say the whole, the whole chapter is about uh, being fulfilled at the destruction of, of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Others will say that it's all future. It's all pointing to the future tribulation. And I'm just going to tell you this morning that it's, it's, it's okay that both of those groups are wrong, okay? Um, that is a joke, by the way. You guys need to laugh a little more, okay? That's, um, we, we need to have some humility as we approach these kinds of, uh, of, of passages, and so I'll give you my best shot, and there's a good chance I could be wrong, but I'll be um, showing you how I think you can unpack this, this whole section this morning. But humility is so important as we get into these kinds of passages together. So here's the context. Jesus and his disciples and this large crowd have entered into Jerusalem, and they're going there for Passover, and they're coming out of the temple, and Jesus and these four disciples start having this conversation. And so in verses 1 and 2, look with me there. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus and his disciples are at this temple complex. And this place was an architectural marvel. This is a picture of what it must have looked like. And this is the Herodian Temple. This was built by Herod the Great back in 37 B.C. A little bit of history. In Exodus, the Jews had the tabernacle where God dwelled with the people. And they wouldn't have a permanent temple until Solomon built one in 1000 B.C. But then in 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys the temple. And when he conquers Jerusalem, he takes many Israelites into captivity. But then in 538, the Persian emperor, Cyrus, allowed some Jews to return back to the land and then to rebuild the temple. This was called the second temple and was more functional than it was impressive. And for 500 years, this temple served as the main temple there in Jerusalem until in 37 BC, Herod the Great built this one. Many called it the most beautiful building in the world. It was twice the size of the Acropolis in Athens. The perimeter around was almost a mile, and it comprised one-sixth of the city. Just one stone measured 45 feet long, 12 feet wide, and 12 feet high, weighing almost 570 tons. And it was amazing they could even move such stones into position. Many of you will watch football later today. When you see the field, multiply it by four. That's how big the courtyard was, so it could, it could have large crowds in that courtyard. So Herod built this for a couple of reasons. Number one, he built it to placate the Jews and to earn favor with them. But he also wanted to curry favor with Rome because it was 
in his best interest to ensure that Jerusalem was peaceful and prosperous. So he envisioned this temple not just being a religious center, but a cultural center and a financial center. So there was no building that was so intertwined with their national identity like this one. Of course, we have buildings like that. We have buildings today that are linked to our national identity. The Pentagon, of course, the Capitol, the World Trade Center. That was a Many people identified New York City with those two buildings. And so if, if someone's going to attack a country, they're going to attack the building that is most intertwined with their identity as a nation. So in 1998, I attended a mission trip in New York City, and we stayed at the World Trade Center Marriott, a hotel that connected the two towers. And for some reason, I never do this, I actually kept my room key from that trip and still have it to this day. Don't know why I kept it, but I kept it. And each morning I would walk out onto that plaza and just, you couldn't help but just look up every time you walked past those two towers. You just looked up and, and just gazing at the magnificence and how large they were. And you would see these things every morning and you come in back every night. And if someone said to us back then, in three years, this complex will be totally destroyed, we wouldn't have believed it. We would say, how, are you, how would you destroy buildings such as these? They seem so fixed and so permanent. And so when Jesus says this about the temple, it would have been unbelievable to them. How would somebody even move these stones? Building it was impressive, but destroying it even more so. There was no building that was more a part of their national identity than the temple. And after Jesus says this statement, four disciples become curious, and now they're over on the Mount of Olives continuing their conversation. Look at verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So remember, Jesus is not teaching to a large crowd, but talking with these four disciples. And they want to know when this will happen and what the signs should be that they should look for. And I think we're similar. We are obsessed with when and what. When I first joined the staff at TBC back in 2004, I came in as a junior high pastor, and I had never even been a volunteer for junior high. I've been a high school intern at a church in Arlington, and I come in as a junior high pastor having no experience with junior high kids whatsoever, and so I asked the students what they would like for our first couple series to be about, and guess what they wanted to hear about? The end times, right? Because everybody has this curious curiosity about these kinds of events, and I think they were bored about two weeks into that series. But here's the reality. We're, we're like them. We, we're, we're fascinated with when and what, just like these disciples. So before we begin, it's important to understand how prophecy works. So, some people will see prophecy as this one-to-one thing, like prophecy made in the future, the one event fulfills that prophecy. That's true for some prophecies, but not all. Many believe that prophecy can point to multiple events 
And I believe that's true here in Mark chapter 13. And again, some are going to disagree with this idea, but I believe as we look at verses uh, 5 through 23, some events are going to have dual fulfillment as we look at it. One will be in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the temple, and, uh, but also some fulfillment in the end times as we think of it today. So I believe that whenever we read this section, verses 3 through 8, I think that we've misread what Jesus says here. When I think of the church that I grew up in and the way that these verses were used in my upbringing, and I look at it more and more closely now, and I say, wait, they they actually, I think we had this a little bit off here, because I want you to pay attention to what he says to his disciples, because they want to know when and what, but what does Jesus say? He doesn't provide that, does he? He says, many are going to come saying they're the Messiah, but don't be led astray. And so many think this statement about wars and earthquakes and famines means that when you see these things increasing, you're going to know that the end is near. But that's actually not what he's saying. He says the opposite. He says, when you hear of these events, don't be distracted. Don't be alarmed. The end is not yet. We tend to look at the chaos of the world and determine that the end is near. And some people love to make predictions. Last week, Someone called the church office and told Pastor Chase that he believed that Jesus would return sometime between September 6th through 8th. And so when I heard that, I decided not to prepare for this sermon. (laughs) Doing all this without notes today. But when I was in eighth grade, I had this Bible teacher in school and we're discussing these end time events. And this is, I think, back in the first Gulf War. And, uh, and of course, he was making all these connections. And, and someone said, well, when do you think Jesus will return? He said, I would say within the next four to five years. And as an eighth grade kid, I'm thinking, I mean, I kind of want to get married first, you know. And there's always that. And, uh, but people always make these kinds of predictions, right? And some people love to forecast the end times like some forecast the weather, thinking that they have it all figured out. They're like this guy in this video. In in 2017, Hurricane Irma was bearing down on Florida, and there's a reporter doing beach interviews, and he was about to, little did he know, he was about to interview the smartest man in the world. People, hey guys, come on over here real quick. Let us ask you a question. What do you think about the storm, the risk uh, to your own safety at this point? I'm sorry, I didn't hear your question. What do you think about the storm, the power, the ferocity, and the risk to your own safety at this point? Well, at this point, I'm very relieved to discover that as we speak, the eye of the storm is practically due south of us by 220 miles, okay, because it's crossing the 80th meridian, which is uh, 80 degrees west longitude. So I'm I'm not so worried because it's so far away. And it's bearing as of 8 p.m. Westbound. Well, not just westbound. It was 275 degrees. That's only 115th above due west toward true north. So this thing is moving and has been moving in a very westerly direction. And because it's several hundred miles south, the risks are less and less. I'm not worried. I don't think it's going to get much worse than what we're seeing right here. All right, thanks. Yeah. Uh, the forecasters, meteorologists do suggest it is going to get worse than it currently is throughout the next 12 hours. Uh, in fact, 24 hours. Landfall on the West Coast looks to be... 
experts do tell us it is going to get worse. So this guy sounded really smart, but I have no idea what he just said. Well, when it comes to end time stuff, some people love to get into the weeds, right? All these details and make sense of it all and connect all these dots. And when they start talking about end times, you just want to walk away from that person, right? And so some read world events, trying to put in, the, in charts and schemes and so on. I think if we do that, we're kind of missing the point of what Jesus is saying here in this passage. Jesus says, don't be distracted by world events. You're going to have a tendency to look at those things and be distracted by them, try to make sense of them, but the end is not yet. So has there ever been a time when the world hasn't felt chaotic? I can't think of a time. And with global media, now we just, we just know about everything. We're always aware of what's going on all over the world. So Jesus says, don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. The end is not yet. And I think some scholars believe that the words of Jesus here refer to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but also to the future, to the end of the age. And see, nothing would feel more apocalyptic than the destruction of that temple. The emperor or one of the Roman leaders, Titus, destroyed the temple in 70 AD and killed over a million people in that area. And this would not be some random event, but this was God's judgment on their rebellion as a people. Look with me at verse 9. It says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So imagine these disciples. You've already heard about the destruction of the temple. And now Jesus makes it really personal. And he says, you're going to be delivered to the religious courts. Be put on trial. Go before governors and kings. But don't be anxious about it. And then over in verse 9, he says to be on guard. Now, does he say that so they can run away and hide? So they can escape? No, he says it's going to happen. He says you're going to be handed over to, and be beaten and, and stand before governors and kings. But why are they going to do all that? They're going to do it so they can bear witness. They're going to go to those places so they can bear witness before those people. So what are they to be on guard about? They're to be on guard about not losing their witness when they're persecuted. You see, persecution is always an opportunity for witness. When we get persecuted, we often focus more on the injustice of the persecution than we do bearing witness. And for us, whether our persecution is perceived or real, the question is, are we being a good witness? William Temple writes, Not all that the world hates is good Christianity, but it does hate good Christianity, And always will. Sometimes the world despises things that we should all despise, like hypocrisy, pride, arrogance, and these things can, of course, happen in the church. But sometimes the world hates just good Christianity. One of the most helpful things I've seen recently 
This is an adaptation from something that was in one of uh, H. Richard Niebuhr's book. The Niebuhr brothers did some work many, many years ago on Christ and culture and how the church relates to the culture around them. And then Tim Keller in his book, Center Church, adapted some of those ideas and put it in this format here that I'll show you. And it's the idea is that we know the seasons that we're in when it comes to how the church and the culture are relating to each other. So he says it like this. There's winter. This is the culture that's hostile to the church. This is a place where we're seeing little to no fruit with the gospel. And, of course, you can think of places all throughout the world that that it's like that. Then we have spring, where the culture is persecuting a growing church. This is places and maybe places like China where there's an underground church happening and there's growth and there's lots of people getting saved. But the government's still trying to oppress what's happening in the church. Then we have summer. This is the church being highly regarded by the culture. And for many people, this might be how things used to be in parts of Europe and also parts of the United States. Then we have autumn. This is the church becoming increasingly marginalized by the culture. I would say this characterizes a lot of where we live right now. And sometimes being, bearing a good witness is about understanding what season we're in and knowing how to navigate that season. And I think to be on guard, to be a good witness in the persecution, rather than simply pining for a different season. So don't, don't forget what true victory looks like. Instead of us being set free from persecution, it might be the gospel being unleashed in the midst of it. That might be the victory. I think Jesus is wanting his disciples not to lose heart and not to be led astray as they see things happen all around them, this chaos. They will not forget what season they're in, that they're to bear witness when they go before these governors and kings. Look at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Some have called verse 14 the most difficult verse in the whole New Testament. So what is the abomination of the desolation? Well, this phrase comes from the prophet in the book of Daniel, where Daniel predicted that a foreign ruler would come into Jerusalem and he would desecrate the temple. And many Jews at that time believed that that was fulfilled back in 167 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem, invaded Jerusalem, and killed thousands of Jews. And then he went and sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal to the Jews, on the altar in their temple, demanding that they worship Zeus, the Greek god. So many would... Jews at that time would believe that the words that Daniel used in, in Daniel chapter, I think it's seven and nine as well, that that abomination of desolation referred, was fulfilled in 167 BC. And we know how 9-11 scarred our national conscience, but this is true on an even greater scale for the Jewish people at this time. As we had these dates etched into our memory, they would have these events etched into their national conscience as a people. What happened in 167 BC, but also what happened much later in 70 AD. And so back in 167 BC, three years later, the Jews, they recaptured Jerusalem, they cleanse the temple, they rededicate the altar, and this is what Hanukkah celebrates every year, that victory. 
Now, I want you to remember that prophecies can have more than one fulfillment. And so many believe that Jesus referring here in Mark 13 to this abomination of desolation is really pointing forward to the destruction now of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but also pointing to a figure at the end, what we might call the end of time or the end of the age. I want to summarize for you verses 15 through 21. Many see this again partly as fulfilled in 70 AD, but then finally in the great tribulation. But again, let's not get lost in the weeds here because what's his main point? Look at verse 22. He says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So what's his main point? His main point, I think, is this. Do not be led astray, but be on guard. There are going to be some that claim to be a Messiah figure or false prophets. They might even perform some signs and wonders. Have you noticed that every cult virtually is heavily focused on the end times? One of the primary ways in which Satan leads people astray is this obsession with apocalypse and the end and trying to connect all these, these things happening in the world. And this is one way that I think that Satan tries to lead people astray and lead them away from Christ and away from the true gospel. Look down at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now this can be a little confusing, but most believe this section, 24 and beyond, is exclusively about his second coming now. But I want you to notice the difference between his first coming and his second coming. The first a star appears in the sky. The second, stars are falling from the sky. The first, very few people saw. The second, everyone's going to see. The first, he came humbly as a suffering servant. The second, he comes with power and glory. The first, he scatters his followers to spread the gospel. The second, he gathers his people to be in his presence. I want you to see the, the difference between the first coming and the second coming. Then we'll summarize here verses 28 to 31, where it talks about this a picture of the fig tree. In Israel, most of the trees are evergreen except for the fig tree. And Jesus says, when you see the fig tree growing its leaves, you know that summer is near. And this parable is, I think he gives this parable to provide hope. Because all throughout these conversations, he's been warning them about suffering and persecution. And this is going to come for you. And now he says, refers to this one image of the fig tree. I think he does this to give hope to them as he promises his return. And then skip down to verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening 
or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. For anybody who wants to make predictions or pick dates, they presume to know more than the angels. They presume to know more than Jesus himself. Now, what does it mean that Jesus doesn't know? I mean, he's God, right? He doesn't know, and we would say God knows everything. We would say that, right? But don't forget, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And so there is some mystery here that we can't fully explain. Some have said that Jesus lived on the basis of his human knowledge, but he could call to mind anything from his infinite knowledge at any moment in time. So we know in Philippians chapter 2 that it says that he emptied himself of certain privileges. Now, he's not any less God, of course, but he limited his knowledge, and that flows from his humility. But for us, claiming to know what God has not revealed flows from our pride. The challenge here, and he says it three times, he says to stay awake. I even wonder if this rooster crowing statement is a line for Peter because he fell asleep that one night. You remember that? What does it mean for us to stay awake? What does that look like for you and me? Well, for the Christ follower, are we being lulled to sleep by the ease and comfort of cultural Christianity? Are we being lulled to sleep by being in a place that we know there's persecution, we know it happens in all parts of the world, but it's, it's fairly still culturally acceptable to be a Christian for the most part. So is, might that ease and comfort be something lulling us to sleep? Jesus warns us not to be found sleeping, but are we in fact sleeping when we think we're watching? There are many people that believe that focusing on the chaos of the world and focusing on all these world events and trying to connect all the dots, they would say that is staying awake, but might that be how the enemy is lulling us to sleep and getting us distracted and off target as a people? So what does staying awake look like? Well, I think first we have to understand what season we're in. I think it's good for you and I to do the work And ask questions like, what season are we in? And how do I be a good witness in the midst of whatever season that is? It starts there. But we also are awake by praying. We break bread together. We show hospitality. We worship. We meditate on his word. We make disciples and we share the gospel. And that's true in whatever season we find ourselves in. Even in our work, we do what Colossians chapter 3, 23 says. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. There is something God-glorifying about a good day's work. And so that's for the Christ follower. And if you're not yet a Christ follower, what's interesting is Even the religion of Islam believes some things about Jesus. They, of course, don't believe that he was God, but they believe he was a prophet. They also believe he was born of a virgin. They believe that he performed miracles. They even believe that he'll return to earth before judgment day to restore justice and to defeat an antichrist figure. 
But how tragic to believe some things about Jesus but not believe he's God and not have a relationship with him or a personal trust in him. And so what about you? You might believe some things about Jesus, but do you know him? Do you know about him? Or do you know him? If you're not a Christ follower, staying awake starts with being awakened to the gospel. In fact, the Bible says that apart from Christ, we're not just asleep, we are dead in our sins. And that's true for every person in this room that, was, that is a Christian as well, that at one point in our life, we were apart from Jesus Christ. We were dead in our sins apart from him. Ephesians chapter two says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So if you don't know Christ in that way, my hope and my prayer is that this morning you would surrender to him, that you would submit your life to him, that you would call on that grace and mercy that is offered to you, that's made available to you through his life, death, and resurrection. And that you would do that today and receive that grace and mercy today. Let's pray together. God, you have told us just what you want us to know. And no more and no less. And we thank you for that because we know that knowledge often leads us into pride. So thank you for holding back things that are not important right now. But God, we pray that you'd help us to be people who, whatever season it is, we, we bear witness in the season, wherever we find ourselves. God, help us to be people that, that don't hyper-focus on trying to connect all the dots and trying to understand in a way that you don't really want us to understand right now but help us to understand the most important things, that you are God, that you came to earth to live a perfect life and to die a death on our behalf and then resurrect and then ascend to the Father. God, as crazy as that sounds to our human ears, God, I pray that we would trust it. We would believe it. I pray there's people that are sitting here right now that don't yet know you. I pray that they would call on your grace and mercy this morning in surrender, coming to know you in the way that you want to be known. We pray this in your name. Amen.